I was at the New York Museum of Natural History not long ago with my kids to show them the dinosaur exhibit. That's what's powering Daddy's Ford. Well, right, but that's also <laughs> touche. Well played, but it's also that's funded by the Coke. industry. It's also funded by the Coke. So you can't say someone's anti-science when they're literally funding one of the biggest science museums in the country. So, so there's that. So these guys, with all of their wealth, have funded all these groups that Julia mentioned, $100 million into 84 different groups that deny climate science and other stuff like the grid is unreliable, renewables will increase costs. So you see all this bullshit stuff out there? It comes from the Cokes. Climate change, the Koch brothers, the Democratic National Committee. We're going to discuss it all on this week's show. Hello and welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. I'm your host, Julia Piper, Senior Editor at Green Tech Media, and I'm joined by Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and former Chief of Staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Chu. Our Republican, Shane Skelton, is partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. We've got a busy show today. We're going to kick it off with our news section where we revisit the Climate Solutions Caucus. Is it a sham? We also check in on the nonpartisan citizens' climate lobby and their efforts to reach out to conservative lawmakers. Next, we hear from our listeners in our constituent services segment. This time, we discuss the Koch brothers. In our main segment of the show, we discuss the Democratic Party's decision to no longer accept donations from fossil fuel donors. We'll have a guest on, R.L. Miller, who helped write the motion. Could this move end up helping or hurting Democrats? Finally, we'll end, as we always do, with our Say Something Nice segment, where a Republican and Democrat co-hosts share something they found redeeming about the opposing political party. So let's not waste any time. Let's just dig right in with the Climate Solutions Caucus. Several days ago, the House of Representatives passed an amendment in an energy and water appropriations bill that blocks federal agencies from considering the social cost of carbon. A roll call of the vote showed that 22 Republicans from the Climate Solutions Caucus voted with their GOP colleagues to forbid the EPA from taking into account the benefits of reducing climate emissions when crafting regulations. We discussed this on a previous episode. We talked about the Climate Solutions Caucus as a bipartisan group and uh, how they've pledged to explore policy options to address climate change. This seems like a good thing, right? Bipartisanship on climate. But in light of the recent vote where you had these members voting against climate action, people like David Roberts at Vox tweeted that every reporter should feel embarrassed for even giving this caucus any attention in the media. R.L. Miller, political director at Climate Hawks Vote, who will be joining us later on this show, has called for the Climate Solutions Caucus to disband. Shane, is the Climate Solutions Caucus a sham? Are Republicans just doing this for greenwashing reasons? What is going on here? So I'm going to ignore your question and just lead with my word of the day, which is stupid. This is just so stupid. Like David Vox or David Dr. Vox on Twitter or David Roberts, he, he knows better. He knows what I know, right, which is that the social cost of carbon has long been political. This isn't some obscure OMB rule that no one's paid attention to. In 2013, Wait, why is it political? Because it can be weaponized for cost-benefit analysis. So in the federal government, if you want to pass a regulation, you have to get through a cost-benefit analysis. So you basically have to demonstrate the benefits the rule is going to provide to society outweigh the cost it's going to put on society. Of course, a lot of rules don't. That's just the way regulations work. So in 2013, knowing this, the Obama administration increased the number used for the social cost of carbon by 67%. They raised it from $21 per ton of carbon to $35 per ton of carbon. And the entire process 
was to make sure that any sort of greenhouse gas regulations could stand up under an analysis. And that's not a knock on the Obama administration. It's just an acknowledgement that it was a political move then. So now to pretend that if Republicans don't fully agree with that, they don't fully embrace it, that they're not willing to address climate change, it's just sheepish and it's small. Like the reality of it is you can care about climate and not agree with someone else's proposed solution. And if we're going to live in this weird universe where if you don't agree with exactly what Democrats want you to agree with, then you hate the climate and you should disband, then we're never going to get anywhere. Because to make progress on this issue, you have to have a willingness to have discussion, not say you do what I say or I demand that you disband and call any journalist who acknowledges you a fool. That's just silly. I wonder, though, why did it have to be put in legislation like this? You could reevaluate what the social cost of carbon is, but why say in law that you cannot consider it? Yeah, I mean, it's silly, right? That's silly, too. And so I think what we're seeing is two sides do silly things. One side raise the cost so much that you can't really have an honest, comprehensive dialogue about what a rule might cost society. And the other side, then rather than trying to go through and work through the regulatory process to right size it, just blocked it. The whole thing is is absurd. And I think if we're going to have an honest dialogue, we can't shoot these arrows, right? We can't say, you know, we have to consider this such a great threat that if you don't agree with me, then you don't have any place in Congress. But at the same time, we can't say that this is no threat whatsoever and that we need to block it in law. So I think uh, I'm not going to say who the adult in the room is. Both sides are acting childish. But to pretend like we're all shocked and awestruck that they didn't want this, you know, $35 per ton uh, evaluation involved in, in, in EPA rules doesn't surprise me a whole bunch. Brandon, what do you think? This confirms our our worst fears. I mean, Shane's going with this both sides are our fault. They're just saying that the social cost of carbon should be considered. Um, and this was a close vote. Well, considered and, at $35 a ton, right? Because that's what the law says. Sure. You know, but if they wanted to change that, they could have done that in the process, you know, you know, through the amendment. But you had 22 of these caucus members vote against it, which is what sank the amendment. And it also calls into question whether this co-chair, you know, Curbelo can deliver. He didn't deliver on this. And so, I, you know, I haven't seen any results out of this group yet. I'm still waiting. And by the way, just on a related point on these, you know, the cost of these EPA like regulations, the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, which is the White House Budget Office, this is the Trump White House Budget Office, came out with a report that said over the last 10 years, it's cost $65 billion in environmental regulation costs, but there's been $700 billion in benefits. That's a 10 to 1 benefit to cost ratio. And I don't, and I don't deny that at all. And I think these cost benefit analysis are important because when you look at things like um, mercury, like things that are actually killing children, you have to address this. This is critically important and credit to the Obama administration for going you know, where they went on these things. The tricky thing about the social cost of carbon, and I'm not saying bad thing, I'm saying tricky thing is that carbon pollution or climate change is a global problem. And so when you regulate it domestically, all the costs of the regulation come down on only the U.S. economy and only U.S. consumers where the benefits are felt globally. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying when you're an administrative agency in the United States, you should be looking at how is this affecting our citizens and then how are the benefits affecting our citizens. And unfortunately, it's a global problem that needs a global solution. Before we started recording today, I actually spoke with Craig Preston, the California coordinator for the Conservative Caucus, which is part of the Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, They're a bipartisan group uh, trying to get lawmakers on Capitol Hill to take action on climate change and specifically put a price on carbon. And I asked him about this Climate Solutions Caucus development of, you know, these members voting against the social cost of carbon. 
And, you know, he was dismayed. He said, we're not moving as fast as we need to. But the point of that caucus was about getting people to the table and destigmatizing, even talking about climate change. So I thought that was an interesting point that Climate Solutions Caucus wasn't created to vote as a block. It was created just to start the conversation in these highly partisan times, which is unfortunate in the sense that, like, it doesn't mean actions necessarily going to come. But I think it just shows, you know, where we're at in this conversation. We're just still at the point of getting everyone to talk to each other. The action clearly still eludes us. Just like North Korea. Big show, no results. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pass on North Korea. But Julia, I think you got right back to what I was saying earlier, which is if we're going to live in a world where you say you agree with all my solutions or you don't have a seat at the table, this is not a solvable problem. If you live in the world that, that he lives in and you say we need to begin a dialogue because no problem can even be addressed in any meaningful way without a, a, a dialogue, that's where I want to live because that's the space I want to operate in. Well, dialogue was the key word of the Citizens Climate Lobby Conference uh, in Washington, D.C. this month. It was all about trying to get the language right in talking to Republican lawmakers. Words like stewardship and responsibility came up. Uh, Trying to reframe the discussion around conservative values like conservation and smart market signals, which gets you to the price on carbon discussion. And again, I spoke to Craig Preston to get a sense of how the event went. Here's some of what he had to say. In Washington, D.C. last week, we met with over 500 offices, 1,400 of us strong. They're all associated with Citizens Climate Lobby to continue to educate and move our members of Congress towards action. Whether they're right-leaning, left-leaning, we wanted action. And uh, we found our successes are that they are moving. It's slow. It's much slower than we wish. But they are moving, and we're building coalitions so that we, in a sense, make it safe for them to come to the middle on this issue, that it's a global issue and it's an American issue of making the climate safe for us all. You mentioned the Climate Solutions Caucus a moment ago, and several of those members recently voted against the social cost of carbon and and valuing that. What do you think about how effective that group is? That's one of the aspects I love about the Climate Solutions Caucus is it's not a group that has agreed to our proposal. We have just encouraged them to be on the caucus so that their voice is at the table. When I was tabling at the GOP convention in California, I would tell people as they walked by, if we're not at the table, we're on the menu, and we're tired of being on the menu. And so we're so glad these Republican members have been heroes to join the caucus. But the fact that they would then disagree with their members on the caucus on certain issues is, is valid and, and part of the strength of our democracy. And so I, as a conservative, have come on board with CCL because I have a place here. I'm not just relegated to the back aisle as it being such a liberal issue, supposedly. But now conservatives are being trumpeted here in CCL as we need to be up front so that we can go and meet with our Republican members of Congress and help them become leaders in this issue. Right now, our our politics have become polarized, so there's a swinging motion of what, who's in party, who's in power at the moment. And we're trying to diminish that so that regardless of who's in power, they're both working on climate change. We just don't have time to waste. Once again, that was Craig Preston, California coordinator for the Citizens Climate Lobby Conservative Caucus. What do you guys think? Is it getting easier or harder these days for conservatives to even express their views on climate? I think it's a mixed bag. I think 
if you want to have that discussion, it's getting easier. But I do think that if you're in a district, if you're elected representative or you're in a community or in, in an industry where it's not welcome, it might be getting harder because as the issue becomes, you know, more and more politicized, you might be unwilling. And we talked about this uh, in, in a previous episode with now NASA Administrator Bridenstine, who said, oh, I've seen the evidence and now I believe that climate change is a problem. But, you know, oddly, when he was running for election, he didn't think it was a problem at all. So I, I think it's it's really complicated. And I think, you know, what, what they talk about it at Citizens Climate Lobby is responsibility, stewardship. Those are huge issues. I spend a lot of time out west. I don't mean just here in California, but Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. They really genuinely care about the environment. I don't think they think about it as a climate issue. They think about it as clean water, clean air. They raise cattle. They raise, raise crops. So there is a message there. And I think the Citizens Climate Lobby is doing a good job. But I do think if you want to address climate change, it's not enough to get people to agree that conservation is good because I don't think that tells the whole story. I mean, I was encouraged, you know, just to see that people are up on Capitol Hill, conservatives lobbying for climate action. The article really caught my eye, and that's why I sent it around to both of you. One of the things in the article, you know, that... This is an e and News article giving a summary of the citizens' climate lobby efforts. Yeah, one of the things in, the, in that article that caught my attention as well is one of the members who was up there lobbying, one of the conservatives, said, you know, while the Republicans are in control and, you know, have all the power in D.C., you know, we should be legislating uh, on climate. And, you know, Shane said that he agreed with that. And one of the things I really want to get to on the show is what are the Republicans for on climate? What is your plan to deal with it? I know what you're against. I know you want to own the libs and all this stuff. But like, I am really excited over the course of you know our season on this show to, to learn from you, what can the Republicans support on climate? Well, here's what I can tell you. I know what they can't support. I don't know what they can support because I've put countless PowerPoints together, countless, uh, countless slide decks, PDFs, uh, roadmaps, and, and, and no one's buying it. I mean, when we founded our firm, it was around the principle that you had Republican control of Congress, and we were saying, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Let's just wake up and acknowledge it. But here's the, here's the treat. We get to address it. We have complete control. So if we do this the right way, you can't undo it. You, know, you can always deregulate after regulation, and you can always re-regulate after deregulation. I mean, that's what happens after elections. But when you put something in statute, I think we've all seen time and time again, it's really hard to repeal a statute that's delivering good for the populace. And so I don't know, Brandon. I mean, I hope I learned that too, because we've had what we think are some really good ideas on advancing clean energy, some really good ideas on cost-effective ways to mitigate carbon. And and you know, I wish I could tell you that that we were having better results at this point. Maybe it's the medium, not the message. Have you tried interpretive dance? Maybe put on a play. <laughs> really amp up the showmanship. If there? you've seen me know. dance, Julia, you'd know why that's not going to work. It might be an intention grabber. I don't know. I'm just trying to say, get creative here. <laughs> the the climate depends on it. it, it, it it's tough, and and I think it's um, look. No one's gonna gonna listen to this and believe that the Republicans are leading on this issue. Obviously, but we should and we can. And the trick is that if we don't. Um, we're not going to be able to much longer. There will be a new president. There will be you know, turnover in Congress. And my question to my fellow Republicans is, do you want to live in a world where the Democrats get to codify their preferences? Or do you want to work with them to codify something we can all live with? And I think this will be something as the conversation evolves that we can really bring to our listeners, because I know people are really curious about the answer to that question. And they everyone knows what I think we should do, but they really want to know what the Republicans 
can do and what they can support and where where can we get common ground to move forward? Yeah. And, and look, Brandon and I don't have common ground on one key area, which is that I believe fossil fuels are a big part of the future based on past discussions. He doesn't. So my question again to Republicans is, do you want that attitude writing law or do you want to work from a position of power and find a middle ground? So fossil fuels still on the menu for Republicans, and we're going to get to how the Democrats have just taken a strong stance on fossil fuels in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for Constituent Services. This is the segment of our show where we take a question or discuss a concept brought up by a listener. Today, we're taking a question from Nathan Chan, a data scientist and self-described aspiring climate hero. You can find him on Twitter at Chandyman, and you can find us on Twitter at Polly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. So Nathan asked, how do the political climate hosts feel about campaign finance reform as it relates to climate change? Did the GOP turn against the science because of the spending and involvement of the Koch brothers? So in case you don't know, the Koch family has been active and influential in conservative politics for generations. Today, they're synonymous with big money in the Republican Party. Billionaires Charles and David Koch, the two brothers who founded Koch Industries, have spent a lot of money advancing their anti-tax, anti-regulation agenda, and that includes undermining some clean energy and climate policies. Much of this work has been done through their political group, Americans for Prosperity, the Koch brothers have also funded right-leaning groups such as the Heartland Institute, Institute for Energy Research, Competitive Enterprise Institute, and the American Legislative Exchange Council. The Koch brothers run a chain of refineries and operate pipelines. Through Americans for Prosperity, the Kochs have advanced a no-climate-tax pledge for members of Congress, where they basically say that they will not sign any legislation that addresses climate change. So to Nathan's question... What do you guys think of the Koch brothers' role in financing anti-clim- the anti-climate movement? And really, how does this relate back to campaign finance reform? Have the Kochs been enabled to do more than they otherwise would have because of changes to the system? Brandon, what do you think? Absolutely. I mean, these guys have – I mean, I have so much to say on this. It Like, I get so worked up because uh, they have been so – uh, problematic on this issue. So let's just rewind. Give me a minute here to like tell the story of the Cokes, the full story. The father... Your version of the full story. No, I'm going to give you the facts. I tried to remain very diplomatic in my intro. <laughs> <laughs> let's just deal with some facts here, okay? The father, Fred Koch, okay, he started the John Birch Society, which is a bunch of wackos that back in the day conservatives like William F. Buckley and the Republican Party said, you're too crazy Hon- for Honest us. question. Did he start the John Birch Society? Yes. That is that is more frightening than I would have imagined. But okay. Proceed. Fast forward. Their sons, who are each worth $60 billion. So in our world, when we talk about like Tom Steyer and his investments, that is like a water pistol compared to like a cannon, right? So they each have $60 billion. In 1980, one of the Koch brothers ran for vice president on the Libertarian Party ticket because Ronald Reagan was too liberal for them, okay? And so the libertarian agenda in 1980 was basically get rid of Social Security, Medicare, a bunch of agencies. I mean, crazy stuff. This is who these people are, okay? That's what they believe in. Fast forward, you have Citizens United, the famous Supreme Court case that removed many of the barriers on campaign finance reform and allowed unlimited money into the system, essentially. So these guys, with all their wealth, have funded all these groups that Julia mentioned. 
$100 million into 84 different groups that deny climate science and other stuff like the grid is unreliable. Renewables will increase costs. So you see all this bullshit stuff out there? It comes from the Kochs. It's it's a very powerful empire, maybe more powerful than the Republican Party, that is spreading these lies about it and have co-opted all of these you know, elected officials because in the 2010 elections, there were several congressmen who wanted to do something on climate. Republicans, they took those guys out. They spent tens of millions of dollars to take them out, and then they danced. They did, had a victory celebration over it and it scared Republicans from doing something on climate. And now they have to take this pledge, 165 members, the pledge you talked about, Julia, 165 members have signed on. They are the problem. All right. So let me let me do some surgery. First, props to Chandy Man. Just awesome Twitter handle. Right. So let's go there. But then next, moving on to the science, I was at the New York Museum of Natural History not long ago with my kids to show them the dinosaur exhibit. That's what's powering Daddy's Ford. Well, right, but that's also <laughs> touche. Well played, but it's also that's funded the by the Coke industry. It's also funded by the Coke. So you can't say someone's anti-science when they're literally funding one of the biggest science museums in the country. So, so there's that. And then, yes, campaign finance reform is a huge problem in my view. Running for Congress, I can tell you that I wish so badly there was campaign finance reform. So I'm not going to disagree with that part of it. What I will say is that the Cokes are a perfect foil, but I don't think they're nearly as malicious as people as people want them to be. Um, when you look back now, now I'll take Brandon's history as fact. I didn't know about the John Birch Society, but one of the things the Cokes the set John out Birch to do, Society has like become the Republican. No, I know. Party. Yeah. Oh come on! <laughs> I had to meet with them, and I used the word "had to meet with them." It was not <laughs> my finest hour. Uh, but 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 anyway, moving on. So one of the things the Cokes did is that, and, and this is God's honest truth. You can you can like it, you can you can hate it, whatever. But they started all these nonprofits in D.C. because they thought there was a real dearth of conservative ideology at public universities. They felt like taxpayers were basically paying to fund public universities who were producing liberal propaganda. Almost everything that comes out of you know any university here in California is very supportive of liberal policy. Now, maybe you'll say that's because it's accurate policy. Fine. But that's not how they felt. And so there was just no space where conservatives could be intellectual, right? Not just in the policy realm on Capitol Hill, but also have thought processes, publish papers, do peer reviews, engage in really sort of long-term policy. And so credit to them for finding for funding academic institutions separate from colleges that could produce all this material. The second part of it is they are ideo- ideological, right? And I think you address that. But I think they're so ideological that they're blamed for things they didn't do. One of the most interesting meetings I had on Capitol Hill, not when I worked for Ryan, but prior to that, I worked for uh, Bob Latta, a congressman from Ohio. And I was talking about the renewable fuel standard with Coke Industries. And they said, look, we're here lobbying against our self-interest. We hate the renewable fuel standard. We hate mandates. We hate... When you know someone is forced to buy something they don't want, now it's incredibly profitable for us because we also have a ton of money. So we just bought a bunch of ethanol plants because why not, right? If someone's going to be required to buy our product, we're going to make money off it. But the fact that we're making money off it doesn't stop us from coming here and telling you that it's a really, really stupid and unfair way to make money. We're taking advantage of a system that shouldn't exist. Fast forward a little bit to what happened recently: nationalizing the power grid, as Trump's proposing to do. The Kochs hated it. They lobbied against it. They funded lobbying against it because they think it's a terrible idea. the plan to try and bail out coal and nuclear power plants with some kind of, you know, using national security justification. Yeah. So the Kochs think it's awful because it's an intervention. But they also last week bought 20,000 shares of First Energy. 
not because they like the bailout, because they understand two things. One, you should fight against a world that shouldn't exist. And two, you have to live in the world that does exist. Another good example of them not fighting for fossil fuels is they spent a lot of money and fought hard against solar tariffs. Not because they love solar energy, because they hate government intervention in the market. So it's fair to say that the Kochs have an outsized imprint on the Republican Party. But I think you also need to acknowledge they're not just trying to produce more oil. They're fighting against any irrational government intervention. Much of the time, they think that's regulation of fossil fuels. But they fought hard for solar when it came to the mat. And they fought hard against uh, saving coal when it came to the mat. I think they're the reason why the two parties can't get together on this in D.C. because they have overwhelm the system with money and spread these lies about, you know, climate science. And it's hard to get the truth out there. It's hard to get the facts out there when they have so many resources at their disposal. And they've got all these front groups that you talked about. And people don't realize that it all points back to them. And all of that stuff is bullshit. And they're spreading it. Who on the Democratic side of the aisle? Name one person that spends hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying against their own business. I mean, you got to appreciate that. Even if you don't like what they're lobbying for, you got to appreciate the fact that they're saying, even though we're making money here, we don't believe it's good for the country and we're going to put our wallet behind that. But it sounds like from the first energy example you gave, they're happy to then find another workaround to still make money. Like they're it's happy not happy to do it. It's just what has to be done in, in our economy. But they still fight against it. And the idea is that we don't like government intervention. But if the government intervenes, we can't pretend like it's not happening. I think that part is maybe understandable. You stick to your principles on something. But then some of the disinformation campaigns is what I think gets people really confused. Like the American Legislative Exchange Council, like you said, came out and said, you know, came out opposed to uh, solar tariffs. But some of the other groups are doing far more extreme things around, you know, really confusing climate science. I've seen some of the YouTube videos. It is a little sinister how they go about communicating some of this stuff. So if it was purely principled, I would totally get it. Everyone's entitled to that. But it somehow has taken on a life of its own that I think is really disingenuous and dangerous. Look, I hate the direction the Republican Party is going. And I well understand that a lot of that money is coming from Coke. So I'm not here to defend them. I think that we had a really difficult time passing a lot of good legislation because of members that were elected with Coke money. So I'm there with you. I just think painting them as the ultimate boogeyman that's so much larger than life that they can't be touched, seen, or heard, it's just a bit much. But here's here's the deal. They are running the federal government. They created this thing called the Seminars Network. You know who was in it? Betsy DeVos, you know, the education secretary. It's a group of multimillionaires who are using their unlimited wealth to influence the system. Scott Pruitt, he's another Coke lackey. There's the person who was just um, uh, confirmed as the assistant secretary for the Energy Efficiency Renewable Energy Office at the Department of Energy. Very important office. He's a Coke guy. They are all over the federal government and they're running it. They've been very, very unsupportive of President Trump. If they ran the federal government and the Republican Party, presumably they'd have some say in who was president. But they were beat badly in that situation. And while they've tried to work with the administration on certain things, they've continue to be outspoken against a lot of what's happening in Washington. I would say President Trump withdrew from Paris and from, you know, because of the Coke influence. Oh, I would say President Trump was ready to withdraw from Paris two years before he got elected. What's interesting is that there's some shakeups at the at the Coke camp. They are actually supporting and at least praising some Democrats for the first time ever in certain ad campaigns around immigration. Uh, this is through the Libre Initiative, a Hispanic outreach arm of the Coke network. 
And then you have David Koch recently announcing that he's stepping away from the business and politics of the Koch network due to declining health, which sparked rumors that he might have been pushed out. Not totally clear what's going on there, but there is clearly a change of guard. These brothers are getting older. I wonder what the next generation of Koch influence looks like. Well, Julia, you mentioned immigration. You didn't mention prison reform, but that's another thing they put a lot of money into. Doesn't that substantiate my case that they have a real vision for what they want? Now, you don't have to share that vision, but it's not about fossil fuel. It's about a better America in their view. Well, I think the interesting point here, going back to the original question, is just, you know, campaign finance and just how much money is in the system. I think regardless of whether you're talking Cokes, Steyer, Democrat, Republican, whatever, just how much is coming from private hands and into the system and how you have to basically buy your way in as a candidate, you start to be far less like a democracy. I think at the end of the day. We just can't compete with those resources. And again, you know, when you heard these things like the grid can't handle over 10% renewable power or, you know, your economy is going to be ruined if you have, you know, more renewables. All of that stuff came from the stuff they were funding. I'm I'm happy that they're doing stuff on prison reform. It's the spreading of lies that is terrible for our democracy because look, you know, Trump's saying the economy is so great. We have more renewables than ever. If you look in Europe, the best economy in Europe is Germany. Also has the most renewables in Germany. Like this is working. And those guys have been spreading lies about it for a long time. I just feel like I want to challenge both sides to think beyond the precise issue in front of you, like renewables, and say, wait a minute, is there just too much money here in general? Have we created a toxic system that we, you know, can't get out of? And I think whoever's in power next It'd be amazing if they took a leadership position on that. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think, you know, you say in politics and around the campaign trail, it really doesn't matter what you have to say if no one hears it. And so that comes down to money, right? How do you get on the airwaves? How do you get on the radio? How do you get on the TV? I think we agree about that. And I think we also agree that renewables should be more in the forefront. Um, I just don't know that they're solely to blame for all that. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, Shane, you can speak you know, specifically to what it's like to be a candidate. I mean, did you like sitting there doing call time for six hours a day or whatever it was, you know, calling everybody, you know, to raise money? Like it's the system is broken. And I think that is something we can definitely agree on is that people need to come together and figure out the campaign finance uh, issue because it's not working. The Democratic National Committee voted recently to ban donations from fossil fuel interests. The DNC Executive Committee voted unanimously to approve the motion. The resolution bars the organization from accepting contributions from corporate political action committees tied to oil, gas, and coal industries. For some context, oil and gas companies spent a record $7.6 million on Democratic races in 2016, but that figure pales in comparison to the $53.7 million in direct donations to Republicans, who have received 88% of the industry's contributions during the 2016 election cycle. Republicans have taken 89% of the industry's donations so far in 2018. The DNC proposal was authored by Christine Pelosi, a party activist and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi's daughter, and R.L. Miller, who we have in the studio here with us today. Hi, R.L. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. For a little bit of background, you are the founder of Climate Hawks Vote. It's an organization building grassroots political movement around supporting pro-climate candidates running for Congress. You were also elected as chair to the California Democratic Party's Environmental Caucus. So tell us, how did this DNC memo and proposal uh, get put in place? Sure. So it was essentially the convergence of two things. Number one, um, as a 
caucus chair within the California Democratic Party. I'm friendly with Christine Pelosi, who's the women's caucus chair within the Democratic Party of the Cal- of California. She's also a DNC delegate, and she has been urging the DNC leaders for years to walk the walk in terms of not taking money that conflicts with their values. And so recently she got the DNC to ban um, contributions from, I believe it was payday lenders and private prisons, which are both things that the Democratic Party vehemently opposes. Separately, um, I, on behalf of Climate Hawks Vote, have been working within a coalition of no of what we call no fossil fuel money, nofossilfuelmoney.org. And that coalition um, asks individual candidates to stop taking money from the oil industry in California and the fossil fuel money, fossil fuel industry across the country. So we've had that pledge signed by people like Keith Ellison, Ruben Gallego um, in Arizona, Bernie Sanders in and a number of California candidates, all four of the Democrats running for governor in California signed that pledge, including Gavin Newsom, who just won his primary and is widely expected to become the next governor of California. So I decided to put two and two together. And I thought, well, the Democratic Party platform is very strong on climate change. Um, We've declared that it's a planetary emergency needing full on national mobilization. And that taking money from that industry is or should be antithetical, should be opposed to our values. So I took one of the resolutions that Christine had previously authored and I rewrote it to include some fossil fuel money language. In particular, I authored the tidal wave of dark, oily money threatening to drown out our democracy. That's one of my phrases. That's actually in the proposal as it was adopted? Yes. Yes. That's very Um, editorial. and, And she submitted it as a resolution, and it passed the DNC unanimously, um, and it is now part of the DNC. So was it, was everyone truly on board with this? I know it passed unanimously in the committee. Was it a difficult sell for some others in the party? I've heard, I've heard that there's a little bit of grumbling within Wyoming, Louisiana, places like that. But mm. is now there a Democratic Party in Wyoming? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can imagine, you know. Senator Manchin, probably not a fan. You know, there are definitely right. some Democrats who have, you know, taken a, pro- a pro-coal stance, for instance, or whatever resources in their territory. What does it really mean now going forward? This is affects the DNC proper, correct? So it doesn't necessarily affect all candidates? Correct. This does not affect all candidates. Um, this only affects the DNC. But in 2016, we as climate hawks were really bothered by the fact that the DNC was holding events sponsored by American Petroleum Institute, sponsored by the fossil fuel industry, and inviting people to speak up from both sides. And so I don't think the DNC should be hosting those kinds of events at its next convention in 2020. And just, Rita, you know, why is that exactly? Is it not valuable to have those interests at the table to at least understand what their motivations are? And as we're in this phase of transition, how everyone can work together? And you're smiling, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Well, there are people who believe that what we need to do is embrace bipartisanship, find that middle ground, compromise. That's not Climate Hawks Vote. What we want to do at Climate Hawks Vote 
is vote them out of power. <clears throat> Great. Well, the temperature just dropped in this room. Hi, Shane. Welcome <laughs> yeah, to the show. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me jump in because I, I got to say that for reasons other than the ones that you have, I'm fully supportive of what you're doing. Um, I think it's terribly stupid from from like a money raising standpoint, but it doesn't bother me as a Republican who wants to also you know win elections. <laughs> I have a, a series of questions, and I and I don't want to like run the clock here, so I I want to throw these out there and would love to hear your perspective or Brandon's or anyone else. But you know, just looking at this totally practically, and let's assume that this is exactly where the Democratic Democratic Party is going. Where does it end? Is it just, you know, companies that extract, you know, fossil fuels from the ground, whether that's coal and oil? Is it the banks that finance them? Because while like $3 million last cycle came from the fossil fuel packs to the DNC, about $60 million came from major banks and financial institutions. Is it unions who actually work in these extractive industries? Are they welcome at the table? Or are they no go because, you know, they actually mine coal and produce oil? And then the secondary impact of that was I saw in, in Huffington Post, you had mentioned that what you'd like to see is a scenario where an employee of a fossil fuel company couldn't donate to a campaign. So if I still worked at API, for example, um, which I don't anymore, and I wanted to donate to a Democrat because I loved their platform, um, maybe not on energy issues, but I just thought they were a good person, really liked their social issues, thought they'd be a good representative. Would I not be welcome? Like, what is the what is the logical conclusion if this plays out? Sure. And happy to answer that because we have discussed that quite a lot internally. Um the short answer to the, to your first question is that we have a list of 100 companies that are the 100 worst actors if you will um the heartland institute the coke founded the institutes founded by the coke brothers are on it um so are the largest oil companies we run into this question a lot well but my one of my big donors runs a very small um, heating oil shop. I'm in upstate New York. Does this affect my donor? No, it does not affect your donor. Um, also, this pledge is forward-looking. So if you, as a candidate, want to take lots and lots and lots of money from the oil industry on up until December 24th, you wake up and over, overnight, you've been visited by the ghosts of climate change future. <laughs> and you go, oh my God, this is horrible. And on, De on December 25th, you announced that you are becoming a new person and a better person. We are all on board. We will fully support you. And we want to be forward looking in this pledge. No, we're not trying to ban contributions from unions. Unions are the Democratic Party's friends. We are not trying to ban contributions from what I was calling in my Huffington Post thing, Eddie Exxon, your frat brother who gave you who wants to give you $25. Um, what we're trying to do, what we will be doing um, over the summer is asking the DNC to ban large donations from individuals employed by these top um, 100 companies. But at the same time, we're finding that candidates can fundraise off the fact that they are not taking fossil fuel money and they can they can make up the money that they are not taking. So for example, Climate Hawks Vote endorsed Jana Sanchez in Texas 06. I'm calling her the bravest candidate in Texas because in Texas she signed our pledge. 
Yeah, I know that you're is, going, whoa. That, that is brave. But then what? And she's fundraising do... off of it. She puts out emails that say, I'm not taking money from oil companies. Can I take some money from you instead? Where exactly is that <laughs> location? Uh, it's Dallas. Um, she was running against Joe Barton, who is famous in climate change circles as being Smokey Joe, the guy who demanded that Obama op- apologize for the BP oil spill to BP. Yeah. Also famous for <laughs> selfies of his naked we, body. We, endor- <laughs> we endorsed her two weeks before that broke. (laughs) We did not know when we endorsed her. How do we distinguish, like as an outsider looking in, how do we distinguish what makes the, the union, who these guys are working hard, obviously, as you said, they're the Democratic base, what makes the guy in there mining the coal whose job depends on it, what makes his money more worthy than the company who pays him? Isn't it kind of the same thing? Not at all. Um, The guy who works in the in the coal mine for now, and who hopefully is going to be depending on the Democratic Party to bring him mine workers' benefits after the Republicans say no, (laughs) that guy is our friend. Um, The guy who is exploiting him, the guy who is not Who's who's he's blowing up some him, of his? Right? Yeah, he's, he's paying, paying him, him, but he's blowing up some of his colleagues. Um, that guy is setting policy. Um, Joe Miner is not setting policy. Um, Joe Blink, <laughs> the uh, Joe Blankety Blank, <laughs> is setting policy, and the policy that he's setting is to keep on burning fossil fuels, keep on polluting the earth, keep on causing climate change. Isn't there so, a two hundred dollar amount though that's yes. coming into play? So two hundred dollars is the max you can contribute, well, and that's reportable, and, right? So and, anything less than that, you wouldn't know about. Exactly, and one of the reasons we selected the two hundred dollar limit was simple practicality. The FEC does not re- does not require you to report donations under two hundred dollars, and so. As a practical matter, we couldn't even track them even if you wanted to. And that's just to clarify briefly, that $200 amount is yet to be part of the DNC platform. That's what you will be deciding on this summer? Right. To be correct, right. The DNC resolution that was passed just now bans contributions only from corporate PACs coming from the fossil fuel industry. And my understanding from the DNC people is that Right now, that's not a lot of money in the first place. Most of the corporate PAC money um, is not going into the DNC. It's going over to the Republican counterpart. Just like you noted, 89% of the fossil fuel of the contributions to individual candidates are going to Republicans, not to Democrats. My understanding is that at the party level, at the committee level, it's even more of a stark divide. So can I can I throw this out there to you, and Brandon? Because I'm actually dying to hear what Brandon has to say about this. We we actually abstained from talking about it off mic because we wanted to so badly, but I wanted to have it raw. Which is so let's let's move past the sort of the money side and think about what does it mean? What does the money mean? And so my question to you would be: Are the Democrats that are supported by the DNC? Are they not trustworthy? Can you not trust them that if the DNC takes in some fossil fuel money that they can't be bought, that there's no quid pro quo? Like, I'd like to think that the people that the RNC supports or the people that I support individually, I'd like to think that no matter where their money comes from, they have some sort of integrity and that they can't be bought. Is the assumption that no Democrat can be trusted to act faithfully if the DNC takes money? And if that's not the assumption, why not just collect the money and let the Democrats act faithfully? I'll say a few things. You know, first of all, there is a debate about this amongst my friends, uh, especially about the practical impacts of it. And so I think RL did a great job of answering some of those questions. For me, on the on the optics part of this, I'm a big fan of it. I think um, 
it's drawing a line in the sand and drawing a contrast uh, that is going to be very helpful for Democrats because we are going to be on the right side of history of this. You know, you look at like the tobacco industry and what they did and how they spread fake science and they harm people. This is where this will go. And we're taking a stand now. And I worked on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. He refused lobbyist money and all of the establishment you know, many Democrats said, what are you doing? You're tying one hand behind your back. But to RL's point, this really helped us raise money because people said, you know what? You're not part of this system that's broken. You're not, you know, going to be you know, taking money from these guys. And so it helped our brand that we were, you know, an outside campaign, an insurgent campaign that was going to shake up Washington and not be, you know, sort of the status quo that takes lobbyist money. So, you know, I think, you know, nobody thought Barack Obama was going to be, you know, in danger of like if he took lobbyist money if it was that going to influence his policies but it was just about standing up for the right thing and i think that's what's happening here it might be good messaging but let's actually focus on solutions then right let's think about what what do we actually want to achieve here because i think the one thing everyone in this room wants to do is achieve reduced carbon emissions and mitigate climate change or to the extent that we can uh, stop it so i guess my question would be Unlike tobacco, where no big tobacco company wants you to stop smoking, right? That's never going to happen. A lot of times when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, industry can be the solution. When we look at the Montreal Protocol and we look at much more potent greenhouse gases, right? Um, it was actually the chemical industry that was contributing to the problem that invested in the solutions that ultimately mitigated um, ozone depletion. But then they went a step further before Kigali was adopted and said, Fine, we mitigated ozone depletion, but we haven't dealt with the climate change aspect. So let's create new chemicals that neither deplete the ozone layer or contribute to climate change. They had the capital to do it. And so they were able to do it before the government, the global government and the U.S. government could step in. And that's still the case. The U.S. government still hasn't ratified Kigali. And yet we're getting these great greenhouse gas benefits because industry is acting. Isn't it a good idea, and Julia mentioned this in the opening, to have industry at the table? Now, big oil is never going to agree not to use oil obviously. But they might be, you know, switching from oil for switching from coal to gas, uh, natural gas, uh, looking at more beneficial uses for natural gas, obviously lower carbon intensive. So it seems to me like the ultimate conclusion that you two are reaching is that fossil fuels have no place at the table. And that might be it. I don't see a world that exists without fossil fuels. And I'm not saying I'm not, you know, pro addressing climate change, but I don't believe we can exist as a, as a species without fossil fuels. But are you guys saying we can? Or you're saying we can't, but they still shouldn't have any input. I'm not a scientist. Um, I trust scientists who tell me that climate change is real. Of course, of course it's real. No, no doubt about it. And what I do is I say that we should not be, I cannot, I, I think what we need to do is get to a world where we are not burning fossil fuels for transportation and for electricity. I know that there's going to always be an argument that petroleum may be needed in, for example, fertilizer, um, certain agricultural products, um, maybe making plastic. I'm, I have my doubts. I'm willing to accept for the purposes of this debate that maybe there may be a place for oil in this world. It would be a drastically reduced place. And right now, the plan of big oil is to keep on extracting as much as possible, burn most of it for, for transportation. Um, and this is simply not a sustainable path. And to get back to your general question, no, I don't think that the fossil fuel industry should be having a, a 
place at the table. Um, they are greenwashing in the world's worst way. Um, somebody did some report a couple of years ago on Chevron in particular, was literally spending more money promoting its green department than actually spending in the green department itself. <laughs> That was funny. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, there's a lot of meetings, and I'm all for the discussions, but we need to see some results. I mean, if if the oil companies, you know, they say they're for a carbon tax, but they don't do anything about it. If they actually put their lobbying muscle and their relationships to work on this, we could get it done, but they're not doing it. I, I Look, I don't disagree with you, and I think we, we actually had this conversation in our last episode where I made that exact point. I think you know, I, I'm always torn about it because I do think the industry adds a lot. I think um, so. I was at the beach just last week with my family, and I literally got out of the water and I had a big thing of tar on my foot, and I was so frustrated. And I flippantly said, "You know what? Like this is bullshit. I'm not backing. I'm not backing fossil fuels anymore. I can't go to the beach and have oil on my foot. This is absurd." And someone smarter than me said to me. You realize that's not a product of oil production. It's a product it's of not oil production. It's mm-hmm. seeping through the ground because we haven't released the pressure. The oil production is what released the pressure. We discovered oil because it was creating hazard before we started pulling it out. So I'm also not a scientist, and I, I don't know if that's true. But I do know that sometimes it's not as simple as it seems, and maybe there is a middle ground here. Well, and greenhouse gas emissions went up again next last year. Like, there's an urgency here. And I think what the Democratic Party is saying is, like, we have to get serious about this. This is more urgent than people are, I think, understand. And so we're going to stand up and send a message. And I think that's okay. So would you guys support, and I'm not saying I support, by the way, at all. I'm just curious. There's a lot of talk about if you put a price on carbon or if you, you figured out some sort of carbon tax or did something, right? Then there would have to be, if there was a statutory change, you'd need to say, well, we're going to then preempt, you know, EPA regulation or preempt some other things. And I don't know really where that road goes, but let's say they said, we're going to put a carbon tax at $40 $40 a ton and we're prohibiting EPA from any further action on on climate, um, or I'm sorry, on carbon. Would that be something that you guys would find productive or counterproductive? I am not in the majority of the climate community on this. I am instead a Californian, where we have done a pretty darn good job with cap and trade. It's not perfect. And there are many aspects of it that I don't like. But to people who think that a carbon tax is the single silver bullet that answers everything, that if all we do is put a price on carbon, and then walk away from EPA regulations, um, I say, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, Honestly, and part of the answer, part of the reason is that the climate crisis is by now so baked in that we need to not simply price carbon in order to slowly affect the world's need for carbon, but we need to keep most of the carbon in the ground. And that's the uh, what Bill McKibben calls do the math. We need to leave five-sixths of the world's um, fossil fuel in the ground if we're going to have any hope of staving off climate disaster. Shane, I'd, I'd love to get to the table and have that conversation. I mean, there are we have done our sort of climate, environment, and energy policy by piecemeal. And so there could be some redundancies in the system. Like if we wanted to exchange the tax credits for a cap and trade or a price on carbon, you know, 
let's I would love for Democrats and Republicans to get together and have that conversation and say, what's the most effective way? Let's deal with this in a comprehensive manner. And to RL's point, you know, a carbon tax isn't the silver bullet. So like, let's figure out what are all the different tools that we need and let's figure out where there would be redundancy in the system. And like, we could make it more efficient. I would love the Republican perspective on how do we streamline it, make it more efficient, but we have to deal with the problem. I want to bring it back, though, now to the elections. We can talk about Democrats and Republicans sitting down one day, and it's worthwhile having those conversations now. But we do have an election to get through, and there will be a lot of change going on in Capitol Hill. And I guess the question for you, RL, do you ever think that by putting a, a you know a flag in the ground um, with the no fossil fuel money, the DNC, it's really about messaging, as we've discussed, Will that messaging potentially hurt Democrats in the sense that there are a lot of purple state races being held this year? And, you know, candidates like Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania has a pro-natural gas extraction platform. And he ended up winning in this state, in this race that the Democrats did not think they could win. But ultimately, he will go and probably will have a more climate-friendly stance than the Republican would have. So it seems like a win for climate on the whole. However, again, he does support natural gas. Does the messaging around no fossil fuels potentially alienate those kinds of Democrats, which could hurt them in in the elections this year? There aren't that many of them. It's uh, primarily Democrats in just a few states. I think that if we were mapping it out, Pennsylvania and Colorado are the two states where you still have fairly even Uh, congressional delegations and a fair amount of fossil fuel money. Um, And I'd add New Mexico to that mix also. But most of the extractive industry states are completely dominated by um, oil money and red state politics. So Alaska, Wyoming, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, places like that. Um, I think it makes a very small difference, but I think it also makes a bigger has a bigger positive impact because of the potential for nation, national fundraising. I'll tell you right now, we backed Cara in Climate Hawks vote, backed Cara Eastman over Brad Ashford in that Nebraska primary. Um, Cara was running on a unapologetically progressive, pro-climate, anti-Keystone XL stance. And we made a campaign issue out of the fact that her opponent in the primary, Brad Ashford, had voted for Keystone XL. And so she ended up winning her election, um, close primary, um, but she won, and now she gets to go face a one-term incumbent in a very purple, well-educated district in Nebraska, and we're really interested to see how she goes. That's a question I guess I have more broadly about this election, and I'm not the only one asking it, but just how centrist should the Democratic Party be versus going more progressive? And it seems like the party's struggling to find where to fall on that, and in different races, you know, there's a different tone, and maybe it is really just about being local to where you are. But at the end of the day, there will be a national message sent forward, especially as we think to 2020 in the presidential election. Um, are you at all concerned about this debate of where the Democrats should fall on the spectrum of left or lefter? I don't see climate change as a truly left issue. I think that it's a very practical issue that the science says that we need to take urgent action. And there's really nothing more that nothing that you could say that contradicts that science. So what about this? Would you would you um, because I agree with you. I don't (laughs) think climate change is a far left issue. I think it's an issue that should be addressed. Would you prefer uh, a moderate Democrat candidate who is 
laser focused on climate change or a very progressive candidate who was laser focused on a wide range of things, including climate change? Climate Hawks Vote has backed those moderate Democrats. Um, in particular, we've backed Scott Peters in 2014. Very, very centrist, general, generally perceived as pretty centrist, but pretty darn good on climate change. Great member. Yeah. Fantastic member. Yeah. So, so we have done that. Um, we don't get involved in races unless somebody is really outstanding on climate change. And I'll tell you right now, because I've looked at hundreds of candidate websites, that there is a basic theme of four points in 2018 that is a baseline for Democratic congressional candidates. You want me to tell you? Yeah. Sure. Let's hear it. Number one, climate change is real. Thank you. I passed fourth grade science. <laughs> Number two. I learned right that in fourth grade. It took me until I was like 30. So, right. Did you have the right textbooks? Because they might have been switched. I grew up in Wisconsin, so who knows? Um, we can blame Scott, Water, well, Scott Walker for, it, for everything that's wrong in Wisconsin. <laughs> About my age, I think. Maybe a little older. But... Anyways, so, um, yeah, so climate change is real. Um, I'm going to fight Trump and fight Scott Pruitt. Um, and... We need to return to the Paris Agreement. They never say anything about returning to the Clean Power Plan. They just say we need to return to the Paris Agreement. And something, something, renewable energy jobs in my district, yay, renewable jobs, tax credits, yada, yada. That one sounds kind of important. <laughs> it, it actually is. But that's what I would consider a passing or C grade for a Democratic congressional candidate. Do you want and the Clean Power Plan back? I, w I don't think it goes far enough. Well, that was my question is do you yeah. think that's the right solution or um i i think that candidates need to be talking about that or a carbon tax or a huge national res or something anything beyond simply returning to the paris agreement because you remember the paris agreement was really vague on what the united states was supposed to be doing right. to meet its goals well and, and everyone else i think that was sure one of the underlying problems right sure. is that the largest emitters perhaps including the united states didn't really have any obligations. Right. So um, Paris Agreement is not perfect, but the fact that the United States withdrew from it has, I think, sent shockwaves through the international community. And uh, it, it has become a foreign policy issue as much as it has become a climate issue. So there's your four-point basic democratic platform um, distilled. And at Climate Hawks Vote, we look for people who go beyond that. Again, I think that's why having this conversation is difficult, but super important. It's unfortunate, but we're just at this point where dialogue is very meaningful. Those who can move forward, like the DNC, have the ability and should do so. But not everyone is on the same page, which is why at least I believe that conversations like these, even if they're a little tricky, uh, are super valuable. And I think we got to that point today. And we're going to leave it there today because we're run out of time. So thank you so much, RL, for being here with us and walking us through the DNC platform. Really appreciate it. We're now going to flip in the last few minutes of our show to our final segment called If You Can't Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something they found redeeming or positive about the opposing political party. Shane, how about you go first? Well, I have two. One in honor of our guest, which is I think it's wonderful that the DNC adopted that platform because we have a tough election cycle ahead of us. And the more money we can get, the better. So <laughs> if all that fossil fuel money comes our way, I think, you know, we'll be grateful for it in the long run. Um, and then also uh, not 
climate related, but um, I just admire, and I mean this sincerely, all Democrats for rejecting James Comey's outreach. I think he thought that if he apologized and said he was a Democrat, he'd be forgiven for whatever happened last election. And the guy can't find a home. And regardless of whether you're you know, into the Trump-Russia thing or into the Hillary Clinton thing, I could care less about your politics. The guy's just a disgrace to federal government. And so I admire that Democrats didn't take the easy carrot. So <laughs> wonderful. We'll be drinking beers after this, and we'll be talking about that for Yeah, sure. stepping out of the climate and energy zone for a moment, but uh, yeah, point taken. Brandon, what do you got? My compliment for this week is, you know, Shane actually referenced it earlier in the show, the, the Montreal Treaty. Um, you know, this is a global treaty to phase down refrigerants and in, in appliances that emit really powerful greenhouse gas emissions. And there's an amendment to that treaty uh, to make it more aggressive. And 13 Republican senators wrote Donald Trump and asked him to support this. They didn't mention climate change or Obama, you know, all these like polarizing terms we have to stay away from, but at least they're doing the right thing on this. And so that's my compliment for the week. Thank you to those 13 Republican senators for doing the right thing here. Awesome. Making progress a little step by step. It is not fast enough, but there's something happening, hopefully. Um, and with that, we'll end our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, this is Political Climate. You can find us on Twitter at polyclimate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about in our constituent services segment. Thanks again to R.L. Miller for coming here, Shane Skelton, Brandon Hurlbutt, and I'm Julia Piper, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media. Tune in next time. I know that most people think I'm an asshole, so I hope I didn't offend. But it, <laughs> yeah, we share community values. <laughs>